Jesus, oh. fuck. Look at this mess. So much past everywhere. I invasions from an uncountable line of yesterdays. Everything, derivative shit, just hanging out, cluttering, saturating everywhere. So much we don't even notice it's there. Like body odor, or an accumulation of stuff on a desk, or a septic tank overflowing, refusing to be ignored. There's only so much platacious shit you can say about the mystery of time before it gets tiring. And yet, so many good words have been wasted doing it. And to great effect, from Walter Benjamin's Angel of History to Mircea Eliade's Terror of History. Quote, In our day, when historical pressure no longer allows any escape, how can man tolerate the catastrophes and horrors of history, from collective deportations and massacres to atomic bombings, if beyond them he can glimpse no sign, no transhistorical meaning? if they are only the blind play of economic, social, and political forces, or even worse, only the result of the liberties that a minority takes and exercises directly on the stage of universal history. Eliad asks this and provides the answer too. People before us did not have this anxiety, according to him, because they didn't see history as simply the fallout of socio-economic factors butting heads against each other. In a similar way, if we can say that Scandi Futurism has any concrete set of objectives, one might be to throw mud on the face of the so-called end of history, handing out ample noogies and wedgies to Nietzsche's last man. Ah, time. Love it or hate it. Its kaleidoscopic wonders never cease to amaze. Please don't see this forest just for trees of comforting, historicist lies that we tell ourselves to insist that we have moved on, because we have not. The past itself is effortlessly, omnipresently around us. It's the continuity of ideas that takes a little bit of work. This episode is about clutter, about the inadvertent side effect of time. The sort of stuff that brings disquietude to the timely modern soul. And not to be vulgar or anything, but one of my first opportunities to consciously explore that aspect of heritage, well, my heritage at least, but maybe on a wider scale, human heritage, was brought uh, to me through the seemingly unlikely medium of metal music. I mean, if you stare long enough at the Norwegian black metal scene of the early 1990s, you'll notice that at the end of the day, in spite of endless attempts at analyzing and intellectualizing that very weird little scene, uh, this was basically a scene that was run by bored, working or middle-class youths who were disillusioned with the strangulating, bland sameness that coded Scandinavian society. It was a rebellion against the bland superficiality of niceness and the culture of mediocrity that it seemed to engender. Some would probably say cynically that it's just about the shock value. Yes, of course, but the shock served a purpose. When I was exposed to this stuff, it established a connection that I know for a fact that many teenagers like me also felt. Even though the mechanisms behind this sometimes were banal. I think this genre expressed some kind of slumbering, latent, indigenous attitude that had been severely neglected in uh, the folk culture of post-industrial Norway and came to fruition because it had to come to fruition at a time of oil rigs, of yuppies, and peak sort of safety net nanny state mentality. 
when the whole culture is getting slow, the whole culture is getting lazy, there's no threats to anything, everybody's getting toothless, right? Something compelled somebody to be that troll, to be that devil in the folk tales. That's what blackmail is about to me. It's not in opposition to the culture. It's like, it's like a vitamin injection that Norwegian culture had to take uh, to get rid of a deficiency, to restore itself, basically. And this is where that kind of pagan aspect comes in. I don't think that uh, the paganism of black metal is any more pagan than contemporary Ozatru is pre-Christian religion, right? But the common ideology of black metal is actually more retrospective in some regards. It's, it's, a, it's the same sort of paganism that the medieval church is talking about, right? It's Satanism. But Satanism performing a folkloric pantomime where the little devils of hell are pretending to be gods. And this is the actual medieval attitude. This is what the direct descendants of the Vikings actually believed. They didn't deny that they existed, but said, you know, these are not actually gods. They are lesser beings posing as gods in an attempt to seduce us. Well, black metal is saying, let us be seduced. It's not saying we're going to worship the old gods in an updated format. What they're saying is, we don't give a shit whether you demonize us or not, but we sympathize with it regardless. Which makes it better, because in Scandinavia you have a taboo against Catholicism, you have a taboo against paganism, you have a taboo against Satanism, and then the fear of not being industrial, the fear of returning to the peasant past, of not of being a hick. So what if you roll up all of that into one fine-ass bundle? You got the fear of rusticity, the fear that the past can just pop out of nowhere and, and, and shake your fucking gilded modern cage. And to do that, it had to be extreme. It had to embody all of the anxieties of Norwegian social democracy at the time, including satanic panics and the whole shebangs. The only mistake here is to say that this was all by design, that it was fully masterminded. It was really more of an egregore or a familiar, in Norwegian terms, a troll cat, an entity given life by the shared efforts of its actors, consciously or subconsciously, presenting a trollish chthonic truth that had lived in the apocrypha of the folklore and peasant mentalities of Scandinavia. The medium there was the message, and the message it was sending was filling the gaps that the modern welfare state was leaving open, a space that was quickly filling up with charged gunk from the dark past. I think black metal sort of served to remind people that this wind will always blow, and even embodied disgust from the past. Without deliberation, black metal forced a niche to appear that our culture had lost, a savage, barbarian rite of passage or ritualized delinquency in the manner of ancient tribal states. But this is probably a deficiency that is felt by the entire world, ever since the Enlightenment and Industrialization, which obliterated ways of thinking that are arguably, on some level, aboriginal to the human race, spitting in the face of this comforting lie of modernity, that we don't actually share anything, don't have anything in common with the past, and should leave it behind, the sooner the better. Now wouldn't that be nice, to live in such a pompous and toothless world, like chronological kings in Versailles, never once needing to encounter or interact with the peasants of the chronological periphery of the past. We would be Nietzsche's last man. Or as good old Venerable Mayhem put it in their classic track Pagan Fears, which sent chills down my spine at the age of 15 and continues to do so to this day. 
bloody history from the past. Deceased humans now forgotten. An age of legends and fear. A time now so distant. Less numbered as they were their lives. So primitive and pagan. Superstitions were part of the life. So unprotected in the dark nights. Pagan fears. The past is alive. Pagan fears. The past is alive. Today we have a special guest. Archaeologist Stein Farstavol with the Arctic University of Norway is not your average landscape archaeologist. Stein, whose name literally means stone, works in the long-term perspective, fittingly, maintains a non-linear perspective, and negotiates between past and present, culture and nature, order and chaos, and the scars that we carve, you and I, into the planet to testify our existence in the future. In this episode of High Scandi Futurism, I have tried to cut out as little as possible, partially due to Stain's inspiring vision for the English language, but also because I wanted to keep this episode completely organic, bog to table, as it were. It's never been different, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I am Old Norse philologist Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. This is Unruly Heritage with Stein Farstavall. som ligger, jag tror kanske en av de viktigaste kärn du egentligen har, om du pickar ut en ting kanske av projektet ditt även om du ser att det inte är logiskt är att kurs är fortida, en del av samtida och framtida mm. det är superpowerful plats att starta är sant? om linearitet och allt det där det är akkurat, jag jobbar ju teoretiskt och, och med den där, eller min tillnärming till arkeologin är att rota i den där samma <laughs> the past is alive. Yes, and uh, I will slaughter English, and that's my one of my duties is to uh, not talk in uh, Oxford English anything. And but yes, but I think that that is. Yeah. I think that's great. Actually, I'm I'm deeply ashamed of my ever more Americanized accent. And that's actually a personal choice I had to make when I moved to the U.S. It wasn't obvious which direction I was going to no. take it, but. Uh, more, more, more pigeon is better, you know, we have to just mash it up and uh, have to liberate the English language and take back our words, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to do, I think. <laughs> yeah, perhaps it's heresy for a linguistic uh, educated person to hear like that, I know, especially when publishing and stuff, I, I like to think um, as, as long as it makes sense, it's good, you know, it has not 
to be idiosyncratic with uh, a, a man in Oxford, you know. It makes sense for me with these words. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, yeah. I actually agree. I think that, uh, well, I am not a, a linguist per se, I'm a philologist. So I, yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm used to, to reading texts as people, as the author thinks that it should be done. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the Norwegian Ture Erik Lund, who completely rapes the language. Uh, and I think that that's the, that's the ideal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's one way to uh, to take something back, you know. You know, language travel back and forth and it's it's like the like the famous uh, chili pepper uh, the habanero, you know. Where where do you think the habanero come from? <laughs> the cultivar, know. yeah. The no, it's it, interesting. It, 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 people think, oh, this it's American stuff, but it was developed as a cultivar in Africa. In Africa. And it came back after afterwards, yes. And mm. language is similar like that, and it's, it travels back and forth, and it's it's a it's a object that travels through time. It, it does in time and space, just like things. And yeah. uh, there's thoughts thoughts made into you know living air, and it, these ideas travel back and forth like they're not uh, they're not in non-space. You know, things the language travel with the people, where it goes and transforms and develops into cultivars. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that is absolutely true, and mm. and do you see um, even even like uh, in Norwegian linguistic history uh, when we started uh, normalizing the language and, and developing written norms for it and and challenge, challenging each other about what is a more authentic way to write Norwegian and that sort of thing, um, you know we had um, ideologies of, of so-called Nynorsk or New Norwegian that wanted to approximate more like uh, go back to to the roots towards uh, Old Norse and. Actually, develop a Norwegian orthography that uh, that used um, uh, letters uh, that are that represent sounds sounds that are extinct from the Norwegian language um, in an attempt at uh, necromantizing uh, the Old Norse language, mm. maybe even in the long term or something like that. Yeah, I find that interesting. You know, there's a fine line, you know, by between reconstructing a language and words and everything and you know, employing what's still alive, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the many Norse words and the things still survived in dialects. And this, you know, the Norse was still here amongst us, uh, haunting us <laughs> with, with weird words that our grandfathers and grandmothers told us, you know, I remember very clearly just when my grandfather helped us build a veranda and they had this pole under the, in the veranda and he called them stupul. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the people people make made fun of him. Ah, oh, that's not the correct word. That's very weird and stuff. And that's, that's something he made up. But you know, <laughs> when you look into the word, it's very common Norse word for pole set into the earth. And you can trace uh, the location of uh, the bell tower for from uh, stave churches from that name because the place names where the bell tower stood, often far away from the church, have stupel in its name, the pole. And yeah. oh, that's the you know this uh, living dead language uh, just popping out of nowhere. Yeah, we see that mm. with like even we could mm. extend the the idea to etymologies as well. You know, uh, where we are reconstructing meanings that uh, are no longer obvious or that would seemingly have have been lost. You know, <laughs> using the uh, mm. the necromantic science of linguistics to uh, uh, like uh, uh, Norkon for instance, uh, is originally a proto-Norse phrase, meaning I do not know who. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's one of my favorite examples. I think, yeah. Uh, so there are these little keys in there that can be unlocked, which uh, allow us to kind of uh, almost, in a way, travel back in time uh, to 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 senses of meaning that uh, that might have been one time in the past. Perhaps one of the topics we can talk about is the idea of the contemporary. You know, what does it mean to walk back in time? You know, it might just open your door and walk into the forest and suddenly, you know, there's a huge grey mound in front of you, you know. It's not gone. It's there. That's the past. It's, you know, the coagulated pastness just trembling forwards uh, anyways, whatever we think about it or care about it. It's it's there, you know. Yeah. So I find it's interesting uh, the idea, you know, about the contemporary and the uh, how the past is a part of the present day, inevitably. It's it's. If you look out your window and think, you know, is the past gone, people? And you look out and you see old roads built on foundations that's many hundreds years old. You see this building with these foundations. They're quite old. Everything is is uh, supported by you know old infrastructure. And we, like, if the if the past wasn't persistent, we, we wouldn't be here. You know, we have had to recreate every second, every moment constantly, you know. It's, um, people think even even computers, even the most fluid of, you know, non-material spaces is also big, built on this infrastructure of codes and chips and theory and physics that's been accumulated through the, through the ages. And... <sighs> I one of your texts you talk about you know uh, that scandifuturism and uh, linearity is quite opposed and and uh, you know how how can we challenge this notion of linearity you know that the past is gone you know one way is through language as has been mentioned but also you know things also travel through space and time and there are concrete connection of time as I can tell you as an archaeologist if if you know the past was not present I could not study it you know how do you study something that's abandoned yes you can reconstruct parts of the past from other pieces of the past but if there were no pieces we would not get anything yeah I think uh, there's uh, I think that the idea that the past is not present is a terribly damaging uh, uh, and and corrosive idea, not just uh, to not just to the past, but I think to our to our present experience as human beings. I I think that uh, well, my impression is that modern people uh, are sort of conditioned to to try to at least here in the West to try to distance themselves from the past and insist that there is sort of like there's a border that we have crossed and that uh, we have kind of walked out of Eden and we can never return. But I think that this is just kind of like. Uh, an ennobling lie that we tell ourselves to um, uh, to 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 participate in sort of like this myth of of modernity that we have reached kind of a more noble uh, and and a more objective state of being that we don't believe in superstitions and we don't participate in in past barbarism and and things like that. But I think that it's actually a very 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 dangerous uh, and unnatural uh, trajectory to yeah uh, to be on yeah. So I can say the pro- progressive perspectives can also be retrospective, you know, if you take that way of thinking, you know, how fucked our world because of all new uh, innovative inventions and everything, you know, where, what way are we going to look towards? And a lot of archaeologists has now come aboard, uh, like Felix Reidin 
then Martin talking about how can we, you know, use this knowledge in the deep past. This is talking about Paleolithic past, that's still 10,000 10, years ago, you know, how how did, did these people survive, you know. And then we come back to, you know, Scandinavia that, you know, rose from the ice 11,000 years ago from this apocalyptic herbinating under this sheet of ice and these enormous changes in the landscape and, you know, it was never empty from people, you know, people follow the melting ice into the land and people always was there, you know, so yeah. the, it was always people, but the people living there had to deal with, you know, this enormous uh, changes in landscape that the earliest generation could remember that the sea was at a, at a higher level, you know, because of the... Uh, how the land rose from the sea after the ice melted, you know, it's, it, the ice was so thick, so heavy that, you know, it pressed the yeah. continent of Scandinavia beneath into the catonic realm, and here, you know, suddenly it started to rise, even while it's simultaneously as sea levels rose, but it rose so fast that it, you know, rose faster than, than uh, the sea rose. Yeah, so. it's like a reverse Atlantis. Yeah. But yeah, Scandinavia has always been a cultural landscape. There's never been, as you say, a no. point where there weren't it wasn't populated by people, whether they were hunter-gatherers or, or later on settled yeah, agriculturalists. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, yeah, I think that's uh, yeah that it, it all that begs the question. Of course, I don't want to uh, run too far into that direction. You know, what is <laughs> what is nature uh, as opposed to, to to culture? Of course, because we have such a such a strong divide. Uh, between the natural and the and the synthetic or the cultural, today, um, but yeah, and, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. But what happens when you discard the word nature? You know, that's uh, that's uh, yeah, that's the Norse example. You know, because nature is a Latin word. It's an imported word of that as influence of ontology. You know how we categorize the world, how we put things into boxes. This flower is natural. This uh, hammer is culture and stuff, and how it's sorted. But think about living a culture where you did not have the word culture. I don't know. Yeah, both culture and nature. What happens yeah. then? You know, there's lot. It's probably a lot of contemporary societies don't don't have this uh, dichotomy that you know, flowed through a lot of modernity and language from uh, from uh, Latin. Uh, Latin places. Yeah. yeah, that's that's where I wish we could interrogate somebody from, um, like from the Viking Age or like the, the migration period or something, and and ask them, you know, what <laughs> what terminology they would use for this uh, sort of thing. And I'm sure we wouldn't get a straight answer from them either. But uh, but uh, I don't know. Like I think like the the closest thing that they would have to a concept of of culture would probably be like their term, like seethed, uh, you know, like uh, uh, tradition. Something like that. They would identify like uh, derived uh, their cultural diver derivations as uh, as tradition, uh, as opposed to I don't know maybe other things. And then they have they have actually one uh, term, edli, uh, which means like uh, which means kind of essence of things. Uh, but it's I don't know if this is something that the later uh, medieval scribes take from Latin sources, or if this is something that is indigenous to the Norse worldview, but. But uh, uh, it's used like as uh, as an example of why. Okay, so eagles, for instance, fly 
uh, higher than other birds because of their edly and people speak and dream because of their edly and the stone is hard because yes. of its edly and things like that. That's uh, a very interesting way to put it. You know, I, I was thinking about, you know, Sadir and stuff, you know, there's a lot of non-human characters probably that also had Sadir, you know, non-humans, even if it's the gods or Jotnar, that, you know, there's concretely different than us, but also have the same stuff. And it is this uh, interesting way of not putting the human in a box for itself still, yeah, you know, no. uh, especially with, what's the last word you used to that, uh, that even uh, eagles had. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. it means like base property yeah. of something. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so it's um, no, it's interesting uh, because it uh, it's uh, some it's a world that doesn't put humanity necessarily at the center. It just kind of explains that uh, that humanity uh, <laughs> has its own center uh, that it has to cling to, and everything else uh, is working in accordance with their own uh, needs and uh, desires. And but uh, but the Old Norse uh, uh, word "world," world is the same word, same word as 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 uh, modern Scandinavian "verden" and also uh, the English term "world." Uh, uh, it means uh, human time. Yeah. So it implies a certain degree of uh, uh, anthropocentrism, I, maybe in that that. Uh, it says that we are now in the era of men. <laughs> like, yeah. sounds but, very Lord of the Rings-like, yeah. but... Uh... Yeah, yeah. I, I totally understand it, because if you live in a world where you perceive, you know, there's other entities beyond humanity that have things, the, even the birds, and even the, yeah, the I don't like the word supernatural, but you know, the things that that's mm. in the utmark out there, you know, also have it, and of course you have to try to center it on yourself and something to, to be it's safe and try to um, yeah not not retreat totally into the forest yeah no yeah. of course yeah yeah that's that's what the isn't that like in um, in sami indigenous religion mm -hmm. they uh, the kind of cultic cosmic center moved with uh, with the dwelling so when they moved throughout the seasons the kind of cosmic center moves with them <laughs> so mm -hmm. the periphery and they're not traveling when they're traveling east they're not traveling out of out of the cosmos into chaos they're moving the cosmos with them so to speak uh i think yeah i think that's especially true like you know how the each place they usually stopped and lived they usually had this uh Seidir, as a, or what is called this um Seidersteins, uh, yeah, was, stones yeah, uh, holy sacred places stone, yeah. uh, sacred stones and <laughs> i think it's quite hard for us today to think like they did or experience it because we're locked into certain ways of seeing but uh, like I say like, uh, I think it's not out of reach you know it's like we have to just uh, think deep enough and try to uh, one way is to is to try to practice it you know a lot yeah. of you know uh, people do uh, and uh, it's not reconstructing in some sense but it's um, it, doesn't need to be continuous practice either. It's just uh, doing it again, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, but that's what. Well, some yeah. people like uh, what is sometimes you know der derogatorily uh, referred to as LARPing. You know, when you're like doing some sort of 
used judgmentally about somebody doing a, a cultural activity uh, that is like retrospective and uh, somehow deemed inauthentic uh, to your being or something like that. I think that the answer uh, against that is just to, to not do necessarily things that feel too unnatural for you, but just kind of slowly dip into it and and just fully fully kind of engross yourself in, in the activities uh, that yeah. you do. I think that because we don't, you don't have to be locked into this kind of mode of being where you're just a modern person sitting in front of a computer, right? You can actually engross yourself in the landscape and, uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, you can actually, I, I think you can actually do, I think you can, so, you know, return <laughs> uh, no. to, to uh, I don't want to say return to tradition, that, that meme, but uh, no. What is the tradition anyway? Uh, tradition of the yeah. gaps. But the but the return is not always the return to the past. It's, no. Of course, you can return the things that's already in the landscape. And one category of you know holy places for the Sami is th things shaped like things we recognize. You know, it's the famous bear stone at Morton's Nest. This you know for certain angles it looks like a huge bear, and that made it special. And through our Western uh, or even more just global modern rationality that's all they just see things that don't exist there but it do exist there the, the bear the stone looks like a bear yeah. even if there's no intention behind it this look like a bear you know and you're the irrational that claim to just remove it as um, through your own frames of mind but yeah this there's, there's a bareness into the stone there's there's you know there's a physical uh, similarity between the things, even if there's no, you know, intentional connection between how, you know, the ice shaped this uh, erratic boulder and placed it on top of the mountain and the bear, but the shape is still dissimilar. And uh, I think uh, it's important to recognize that way of thinking. That's throwing out away. Oh no, that's something um, wrong with the mind because the mind wrongly look takes similarity between things, but the shape is still similar whatever you say <laughs> yeah that that's where yeah. like uh, what to return to what we we're talking about like this post enlightenment idea that uh, that the past is this kind of irrational and 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 subversive uh, and kind of like implicitly kind of poisoned uh space uh that we have moved beyond uh i i think that that's like one of the appeals of uh well, first of all, I think that people uh, people have interest in the past, and people uh, want to people approach uh, you know kind of these neo pagan currents, and they watch uh, folk horror movies and things like that because they understand that there's something about the modern condition that has kind of where we left something behind. We've thrown something out with the bathwater, right? I think especially with uh, maybe folk horror movies, you know, like uh, I don't know, Midsommar or like The Wicker Man. Think what kind of the ideology that they sort of secretly admit to is that uh, modern people are kind of scared that the past has not been left behind, that the past can, like, that there's like an inherent, like, kind of dark pagan past that is still with us and can actually awaken uh, imminently uh, anywhere, especially maybe out in nature or something like that. That some ways do you know it's yeah. there. Yeah, it is. Every place yeah. human has lived for one day is haunted by you know by the past. We shape the land we tread on, and whatever we try to do, we will always be part of the environment, the ecology, the geology, everything you know. And 
every place is haunted. And that's think about the places you grew up and walked about and all the things. Uh, the, one of yeah. the things that made me interested in archaeology was not the Norse past or the Stone Age or anything. It was, you know, those these smashed ceramic jars from uh, 60 years ago in the, um, along the beach, you know. These things made me interested, you know, in everything. And that's a very important thing to remember, you know. We're not talking just about the very distant past in chronology, linear chronology, but also the very recent things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I like you, you, the slogan about, you know, walking backwards into the future, because, of course, it reminds me about Walter Benjamin's the Angelus Novus painting and the Angel of History that looks backwards in time, but irrevocably moves forward. But see this huge pile of rubble building up, building up, building up. And I see archaeologists just, we are rummaging through this ever-increasing, ever-accumulating pile of rubble and human uh, pasts, you know. Yeah, and that's um, and they can even talk about you know, even the present has a prehistory, you know. There's things beyond the text, beyond the words, even pre-theoretical, pre-ontological, you know. There's some, and I talk about the material past here, and uh, yeah, like the grey mound, you can not see it, but you can stumble upon the rocks, anyways. You know, it it will be rediscovered in some way or other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I sympathize very much with that uh, with that perspective, uh, and I I have had similar experiences when I was growing up because uh, I don't know I, I I grew up in kind of what used to be uh, an an agricultural community, uh, but was slowly uh, becoming a suburb. So my parents were some of the first people who bought uh, uh, a house in what was kind of like a planned neighborhood with uh, with plots and things like that. So when I spent my first few years there it was still forested and there were car wrecks in the woods and you had old mill houses and things like that and then they extended the road you know so the mill house was gone the car wrecks deteriorated or were taken away and houses popped up i remember i had a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance uh, around that that personally because uh, I, I don't know when you're a child you're relationship to the landscape uh, you bond a lot to the landscape uh, right and uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that the, the landscape and the and the, yeah. the human uh, absolutely and yeah yeah uh, and there's just a very important connection to do there you know if we talk about the non-linearity of the past it's just look to the landscape how you can park a rustic car at the same place at the, besides the Greymon, there's there's a connection, you know, the accumulated past as not this unreachable dimension, but it's it's this rubble that continue to accumulate in the landscape. And like you say, how how do we experience the landscape? I think as older we get, uh, adults, we are much better at filtering out the landscape, especially with our modern capitalist society with very jobs, we have to go travel back and forth between the residents, but think about, you know, this traditional way of um, of farming for example, uh, compared to the industrial farming now, but in the past where they had to, you know, dig into this old grey months to remove them, to get more fields, and, and uh, that's a different way of closeness, you know, the things are there in the landscape, and we must also remember that the Norse uh, society or in the, the 
pre-Viking age and they also lived in this landscapes with past living together even they had these grey months from the bronze age already over a thousand years old in the same landscape they lived in you know they also had the past they had to irrevocably anyway deal with perhaps they not they did not have archaeology as a science field but surely enough they dug up and encountered weird things in the ground and yeah experience uh pastness too yeah i uh, that is uh i love uh antiquities in in prehistoric contexts like uh when you find uh stone tools in iron age graves or even even inside iron age houses that have been deposited maybe near the fireplace or under the door and things like that and uh you get the sense that, of course, they must have, uh, you know, there are all sorts of uh, folkloric uh, explanations for what, like, uh, a stone axe head is, you know, thunder wedges and that sort of thing. But I think that they must have also sometimes recognized these objects as as artifacts, you know, that 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 somehow belong to the to the past, especially if you find them in situ, you know. Yeah. You, they open a burial mound, and of course, they would recognize the practice from their own culture. But it's a culture that is, you know, a thousand years older, maybe, or uh, yeah. than their own. And that's like, especially here in, the, I live in Tromsø and the northern Norway, and especially the coast of Finnmark is an Arctic landscape where the past is so visible because you know slow accumulation of vegetation and and the soil and everything. So this you have these buildings, this building foundation from you know the early Stone Age, is almost you know. 7,000 year old building still visible in the terrain. You go out, oh, there's a building once stood there. And you see these buildings have been repeatedly inhabited perhaps with breaks of about 1,000 years and everything. And there's recent research on it. You see these people reuse these sites again and again. Of course, the inevitably will be a counter different technologies. They have stone technologies, but suddenly they discover stone technology from thousand years before, where they had different flake technologies, but now we are, now we have uh, this uh, different kind of way of reducing stone, and they had to have the expertise and understanding of stone that this is something different. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, you know, the you, past. The past also had the past. Yeah. The past was also present in the past. <laughs> Because like the flint napping, the flint napping techniques, of yes. course, it takes thousands of years to to uh, innovate and, and create new techniques there. Uh, yeah. But they must, but they must have had such an intimate understanding of the material that that they, of course, they must have, they must have recognized the technology, but it must have they must have seen it as a different technique. Technique, yeah, yeah. yeah, alien technology in yeah, some sense, yeah. you know, because there's huge differences in different way of treating stone and uh, preference in material. Because oh, we like to work with quartz sites and quartz, so these coarse materials. But suddenly, you know, oh, in this house we dug, we found in the old foundation we found these flint blades. Really strange. I don't know how they made it. There had had to be many, many times that people had these experiences. You know, yeah. And then, and then you can think back, you know, to this classic example. I like to use the grey mound or kerns, everything, and the kerns that exist over thousands of years, even back in the Stone Age. You know, there's a, I think there's there is implicit recognition, recognizing the pastness of of uh, landscapes and how the past are part of the landscape and the future. Because what do you think when you put down a grey mound? You thought about, you know, 
like a time machine traveling into the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, they wonder how did they thought about how long did they, you know, man this mound, how long or did they just place it there and leave it, you know? There's so many questions to answer. Speaking of, of time machines, you know, it's uh I don't know if you you, you know the, 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 the band uh, Norwegian band Tusmörke. They have a very like a very strong like cultural historical theme uh, throughout their um, discography, but they have a song called "Inverden av igår," so uh, a world of yesterday, hmm. uh, which is like yeah, their their big archaeological anthem, where yeah. they sing it kind of like through the perspective of a, of, a, of a princely burial yeah. kind of and 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 and, and <laughs> almost like like this person was buried so that he could be carried through time and so that people in the future can can see him and recall uh and ponder who he was and what the intention was when he was buried and i I think it's if we look at like this concept of museums like a museum originally is of course like a, a temple to the muses where you go and to be inspired right yeah i always thought of of museums in a way kind of as, as as temples or even like you could use there's something ideally like the museum something when something enters the museum according to museum ideology yeah, it's never supposed yeah. to leave there ever it's supposed to be interred like a like like a bog you know you throw something in the <laughs> bog almost but instead you throw it in a display case or a, an archive or, or something like that but i think uh there's also like kind of an opposite uh view is of course that of of Tur Eriklund, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who's has a very different perspective that that uh, when you remove things from their kind of uh, deposited context or when you start reconstructing burial mounds, for instance, um, that it's kind of like an invasion of the body snatchers, like a replacement of the original thing. That the burial mound sort of ceases to be itself, or it gets like uh, Frankensteined in a way, or is zombified um, yeah. and taken out of its organic life and replaced with something else. I, I don't yeah. think that that is like the end all of it, but I think that that's no. an interesting kind of counterweight uh, to to museum ideology, which I am I like, but I have we have to be able to interrogate that, yes. also be critical of, of it. I think. Yeah. I think it's commonly discussed, you know, about having museums in place or where things are from, and there's been huge debate of repatriation of things. That's even locally in Norway between we want the things back to the village, you know, want to yeah. show it here. And uh, but interesting, you know, the past will always be. It's it's uh, flexible in some sense, it's uh, resistant, but also fluid in other sense, because when you use the example of grey mounds, I think about, yeah, you know, grey mounds are usually very often used as people bury more people after the first yeah, one was yeah. built, and you yeah. have these deposits of new bodies into the same mounds over hundreds of years old, and then you have looters in the very distant past, uh, perhaps a hundred years after it was like even the Wolfsberg ship was plundered, yeah. Uh, where <laughs> where people dig down the steed stuff and stuff, and the, the people have have had, had this idea that things last inside these things, you know. And yeah. Wolfsberg ship is fantastic, you know. This clay, the packed, this oxidant 
oxygen is don't reach the wood and it doesn't rot and people have speculated recently think about you know was this intentional you know did did the people yeah. that made the monster know you know that the things are going to last and that's a very interesting question you know we built this you know this time hard capsule. it's to yeah, yeah time capsule and it's extremely hard to take care of things into the future a yeah. modern world will collapse with so much information get lost because the media we use are not uh, solid enough, you know. One of the best ways to <laughs> preserve writing is, you know, use that, what they always writing use, clay tablets, you know. Yeah. A clay tablet is much more resilient than a CD that will rot away in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know that's, um, I think it did uh, digress a little bit, but this idea about landscape and how the past is a part of it. And uh, I think it's, very fair to recognize the, the past often come to us as fragments, you know. It's uh, incomplete, but I don't think we should be afraid of the inc- incompleteness. That's the nature of things, you know. That's the nature of the universe and world. Things <laughs> yeah. are come to us in, in fragments. And people have criticized archaeology because of this incomplete, incompleteness the hair we constantly struggle with. But I think that's one of the... Um, yeah, the good things with archaeology is is this fragments, you know, with fragmentness. Yeah, it never and, ends. And 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 like returning to kind of this, uh, like uh, as one of the points I want to make with Scandi Futurism too is that uh, that because of the fragmented uh, nature of the past, uh, the past actually changes. We have influence over the past through our reception of it, right? Um, the past is not the same today as it was in the nineteen sixties. For instance, and um, in a few years, the past will be completely different from from what uh, what it is today. Uh, and as far as we can tell, anyway, you know uh, how it was like. <laughs> if if you're gonna sit down like it and imagine completely like an objective happening of the past, you know, and we don't have access to that, of course, like the the, the actual physical events. But that is not the point, you know. We 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 use the the past constantly. And we're trying to decipher every little piece of it. And sometimes we may get closer to it, or maybe we won't. But I think that that's kind of of a bum-steered, kind of misguided way to look at it. Yeah. But also, I can turn it around and say, you know, the past is also influencing a lot of things we do, especially just material past, you know, an old road usually is under a new road, you know, old roads lead us through the terrains, lead us through the landscape paths and paths previously trodden this bit naive way and uh, superficial, but it's quite deep too, because, you know, the path set traces that we follow or even obstructed by if it didn't talk to, uh, theoretically. Yeah, I, I don't think it's yeah. naive at all. I think that it's actually, I, th- I think it's unacknowledged. Uh, actually, it's a tremendously, uh, uh, I don't think people recognize how much uh, we are inepted uh, to yeah. the past. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I think that's especially today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I think uh, when it come back to the landscape, you know, what, what happens to people when they live in, for example, the um, city that's continually renewed, that would be a hellscape, you know. If a <laughs> yeah. city was renewed every year, we walked in these surroundings where there are always new buildings, everything is less than 10 years old. Think about that kind of universe, that sci-fi universe would be <laughs> if you lived in a place that was 
no thing was older than 10 years old. Could you imagine it? <laughs> it would be a uh, I think very it, strange place. Yeah, and I, f I think people would be terribly unhappy because they would wander around kind of like aimlessly and without without an anchor too. Everything would be a completely like... Uh, everything would be like, like they couldn't take anything for granted in, in a world where nothing nothing yeah. persisted. Yeah, and, that, and that's the the resilience of the past. It's persistence. It's obstinate. You know, we always have to deal with the past. A lot of archaeology is employed, you know, to deal with this obstinate past that's past us in the path of new buildings, of roads. We have to go to rescue, uh, excavate it, remove it. Uh, it have to be some way interacted even if you just blow it away or dig it up it's there you know in yeah. your face you know <laughs> it's pre-theoretical it's there you know like you can't think away a sword plunging into your stomach you know you can't no. think that the way it's before any ideas shape the world or anything it's yeah it's this the past especially the material past has this rawness but also perhaps can even trace it to the language and words and everything. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like a sword plunging into the stomach, you can't stop it. No, that's what I like with archaeology, is that it's not... Uh, like, a, kind of the the physicalness of it is, is non-negotiable. And it's yes. just not... like That's a world that is not usually acknowledged in, in, in the world of philology or linguistics. But uh, I remember when I was studying uh, uh, museology one of the kind of points that they tried to make uh, and tell us then was that like the uh, they wanted to kind of talk out against um, a, a preceding paradigm that uh, that objects have a sort of an imminent speech that uh, that objects talk and uh, they wanted to kind of tell us that objects have have no speech in themselves we 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 only project speech onto them uh what do you th I, what do you think of that i, I personally think i don't think it's, i think it's uh it's, i think it's bullshit, <laughs> I think it's bullshit <laughs> of course yeah, of yeah. course we could not get any knowledge out of things if you of course we project things ideas yeah. symbols and things but also things project you know imaging on, on our retinas you know the influence yeah. what you see you know like like you're talking about you can't you can't think away a sword plunging into the stomach that's materiality you know it's hard matter that's coming and in, into us irrevocably, yeah. like this mound of rubble you know we can't stop it they're there they're influencing us they look like things we can interpret it so many ways but the pre-theoretical way of you can't think away a gray mound from your field <laughs> yeah if uh yeah. yeah if if the objects did not speak we would not yeah. be able interpretation would yeah. be impossible and yeah. it's important to note we're not talking about scientific objectivity, anything that oh, we know the precise thing that meant to the people in the past. You know, things like you say can be different in the future because of the context, everything. But there's this obstinate hardness in things that, yeah, they have a lot of potentialities to be interpreted in many ways. But yeah. The, the thing will always be there because you could not interpret it if it wasn't there. That's, you know, it's logically impossible to try to, <laughs> because it's there. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important. Uh, to, yeah. Again, not, it's not about objectivity, but about presence. It's more about presence. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you ever had any specific encounters uh, where you 
you f- you felt that you were specifically like very strongly confronted uh, with the kind of the past and the, its connection to to the present. It's it's yeah, and especially that's, that's I work a lot with uh, Second World War remains of the German occupation of Norway, and then visit some of the sites on the coast and and the inland, and one of the hit you in the face when I last uh, two years ago, you know, encountered uh, a remnant of a prison of war camp where the Nazis used the Soviet prisoners to slave labor and cut forest, and the fence was still standing, you know, 75 years afterwards because of the uh, nailed into trees, a lot of barbed wire, and it's just, it's just so fucked up. <laughs> being there, you know, this is 75 years ago, this stood there this, you can stand inside the fence you know, and uh, and experience what is looking out through this barbed into the environment it's just mind-blowing in some sense than, uh, the persistence of these things and of course it's most grow when it's rusted but it's still there, yeah, yeah Fascinating Yeah, That's, that's what uh like you have your uh, contemporary archaeology project, um, unruly mm. heritage, right? Yeah. Um, I like the, the, I love the term unruly heritage because because as as I know as I know you've you've said before uh, the heritage is unruly and it should kind of be unruly too. I think it's inevitably unruly. You know, <laughs> yeah. we talked about you know the screamouts of people thinking precisely about things moving into the past, but, you know, 99% archaeology is things unintendedly, unplanned, pre- living into the future, even though garbage or CO2 or Greymon or uh, this uh, house pits, you know, it, it was not constructed to last into the future, but anyways, they're still here. Most of the heritage is not chosen, you know, we can't choose what's what we encounter always. Of course, we can't choose what we call heritage but what comes to us in the material past is just yeah we can't choose it away like the farmer with this huge german bunker on his field you know we can't i choose away this not as a part of my past but he has to deal with it perhaps make it into a potato basement or something but you can't choose it away (laughs) you can't make it into air it's there you know you have to deal with it blow it away take care of it do whatever you want but it's there you know yeah, I think that uh, leaving the uncomfortable parts of the past out of your curation is a, so, is a sad yeah. tendency, I think. Yeah. It's a way of thinking of the privilege, the pe- people with privilege, you know, yeah. the people that have this, think they have this freedom to um, absolutely choose. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. that the most important things in life are probably the things that we don't choose. <laughs> yeah. 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 And how so, we deal with then, them yeah, is yeah. what makes us, you know. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, contrast with you know uh, magical thinking in that way, where, where you you explicitly do the opposite. You know, you try to believe things into existence and have this drive towards uh, you know um, towards your will. Uh, interesting how these concepts crash in some some, some way, but uh, how how can yeah. yeah. Can magic and heritage coexist? <laughs> <laughs> I think they do, because uh, because yeah. um, I think that there is so much um, so much magical thinking already with uh, with heritage and uh, so much wishful thinking. Uh, maybe especially yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, and it's important to note that 
when I speak about heritage, I not, not only speak about good things, I speak also about all the terrible things out there, this nasty pollution, uh, this looted objects, everything, these are kinds of heritage we have to deal with, you know, it's no choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like unexploded bombs, you know, it's, yeah, terrible yeah. heritage, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's what, uh, if if you heard the older episodes, you know, my friend, uh, my archaeologist friend Axel, that's what yeah. he does these days. He's part of an excavation team down uh, in Belgium, where the part of their job uh, is surveying, uh, surveying places uh, that may have, like, uh, undetonated uh, bombs from the war and things like that. So yeah. they have dedicated uh, field archaeologists who know how to handle that sort of stuff. And... Yeah, I think a part of the future for archaeology as a discipline is, you know, thinking about how we will deal with this distant past and mostly the recent past. You know, how how do you deal with you know, this jumble of barbed wire in the forest? It can hurt people, animals. What what do we do with this stuff? You know, we the archaeology is about dealing with the past, not just reconstructing it. It's about, you know, what can we perhaps document and remove and yeah, just like the bombs, you know, <laughs> it's about, yeah. we can, uh, we often do removal of pasts, exercising things <laughs> and moving in them different places into museums or a garbage dump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's kind of like a parallel maybe to your, uh, um, to of course, like contemporary archeology span uh, with uh, toppled, uh, uh, toppled monuments uh, from the, from the Nazi occupation or like barbed wire and things like that, of course, yeah. is, uh, uh, you know, recently with Brute Norse, uh, like, a, like a kind of a, a theme that I've been revisiting is uh, sort of the more, um, um, the stranger reception of uh, Norse philology and, and uh, Norse religion, cause, which is terribly misunderstood, especially like the uh, kind of the 1930s and 40s aspect of it. Because I yeah. think that that's just like something that uh, that especially my field has not been willing to deal with at all. Uh, it has just kind of uh, been uh, delegated to to some like cultural historians who want to to have it as can they have it as their kind of field of expertise. But uh, even though it is a trope that was commonly repeated when I was studying Old Norse religion, for instance, at the university, you always heard like that uh, that like the appropriation and abuse uh, of the Nazis, uh, of, of Norse literature and things like that. And then you, you, you kind of, you read it and, and you realize that very few of the academics who talk about this ever actually like looked at it themselves per personally. They have never dove into hmm. uh, these texts and seen, well, what are they actually saying? How did they use it? And it turns out that the way that they use it is often very different from, <laughs> from, from the common conception of it like i mean they they did use it like for instance the quisling regime they they have a very deliberate use of uh, of the cult of saint olaf for instance yes but i think that that's uh that becomes immediately a little bit problematic because uh, there's no desire uh in kind of a norwegian public ideology to to necessarily distance yourself from uh from like national saints and that sort of thing. Of course, uh, Saint Olaf is considered passé because it's like a Catholic remnant, and we're kind of in a in a process of continuous, uh, how should I say, um, 
de-Christianization or maybe not a more secularization is a, perhaps a better term. Yes. You know, so so I think that that's where they're attacking from. But I don't think that like Norwegian culture has not been prepared to say uh, uh, Saint Olaf was abused, you know, by by the Nazis or something like that. You know, because that's too close uh, to the national mythos. You know. Yeah. So they delegate it to kind of these um, to these things that are already you're kind of like openly saying are are like you know you're already distancing yourself from from already you know yeah the like, other yeah the other yeah the other yeah, yeah. So, so. so you 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 don't there's no there's no public attempts at revitalizing paganism so it's easy to just like pile it into that <laughs> pile yeah. for instance you know. Yeah, I think, as like you said, a lot of nuance get lost when you take an uh, extremely important that you've shown. You know, they did not only take refuge or take inspiration from or manipulate the, the distant past, like Iron Age stuff and uh, medieval stuff, but yeah, sent all of the, the Catholic stuff also got glorified. And why is that left out, like you said before? Uh, and like, yeah, why leave that out? And keep the north stuff in it's extremely unfair to the past <laughs> yeah no <laughs> yes. it is yeah yeah and even either way you know it shouldn't really um it shouldn't really matter for our reception of like actual historical you know uh like iron age archaeology or yeah. or medieval texts like it can you can you say that most horrific Norwegianization processes in norway was done under the, the banner of christianity on the in, in Nordic missions and stuff for both of traveling people and the Sami people is always, you know, this national Christian way of looking at things. Well, it's not pagans doing that, you know, no, it was no, no. priests. So uh, it's it's unfair, of course, but you should not, of course, the pagan uh, stuff had a small place in, in of course, like you said, in the national summering, of, but why? remove everything else and just talk about that yeah but as you say also like uh, if you start looking at kind of <laughs> uh problematic uh, heritages in uh, in norway there's a lot to look at just even in okay. uh, in in very recent uh, times people were destroying cultural heritage up until the 1960s and even later uh before we got uh, laws actually protecting ancient monuments and uh, and of course uh, we, you were talking about the Norwegianization process, you know, with the Norwegianization of the of the Sami, for instance, which is something that was going on long after it was officially supposed to end, of course. Yeah, at, at Svanvik and the Svanvik and Arbetskoloni, where the Norwegianized traveling people, it was continued into the 1980s, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, it's it's uh, insane. It's uh, of course it's past, but it's very yeah near past. Uh, that's uh, uh, yeah difficult heritage, uh, say the least. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, yeah. yeah. It's also the, the hypocrisy of associating all of this with World War Two and then pretending as if everything, all evils were conquered <laughs> in 1945, but uh, then we were yeah. forcibly sterilizing minorities yeah and um, burning the archives yeah. documenting it in 1990 like yeah but but by continuing to you know um overplay you know the other uh, viking or uh, norse past uh, it was important to the nazis and stuff and uh, it's making uh, make a huge disfavor and of course it's uh that's um the phrase that it yeah. uh, creates its own problem of course when people are told that and then 
people believe that and start to, to uh, if they seek that uh, kind of way of uh, exploiting the past, they use it too, and it's uh, powerful. Yeah, yeah, too. that's 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 the spell of it, you know. Yeah. That's the that's the devil's pact because uh, you say when you. <laughs> You you kind of repeat that lie, and then there are people who who find that lie appealing, and they actually start acting in accordance with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When the reality is actually very banal. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Anyway. No. no, it's important to talk about, but I think you like emphasized in some previous podcast that you know it should not take over either. But it, then you like you continue the cycle, you know, yeah, no, by, no, by no, making yeah. lot of podcasts. I think it's a bit good to to have a diverse topics and not brush over things, but not you know continue to get trapped in this endless cycle of uh, is this right wing or this not right wing, and uh, you know, no, it's uh, no, it's fruitless. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Uh, interesting to talk and uh, 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 yeah I think the topic I know how the past is part of the present and not least the future is uh, yeah that's one of the core problems of contemporary civilization even you know we have to deal with uh, unintended consequences of the uh, great generation of boomers you know we're fucked already since the 90s <laughs> you know about you know things happening to the climate and stuff and uh, yeah the past is yeah it's not backwards to deal with it's very much forwards yeah yeah no yeah mm. it's as you were saying in in the beginning you know it's um the past uh, like like responding to the past can can be a progressive endeavor but there there have been so many traps associated with it you know it's people uh, have this false assumption that being interested in the past is automatically some regressive uh, and suspicious thing you know that um, that uh, it's something like a, like something reactionary about it <laughs> that uh, yeah, there's some, yeah. something inherently conservative about the past but no no there's something also no something fresh and new and inventive you know, often when even reconstructing things to making things new and it's it's a different kind of progress because we have to jump out of this idea of linear progress towards the future we have to think about this accumulating pile of rubble you know yeah. because i think it's extremely dangerous to think about you know progress as leaving the past behind because we can't do that you know no no and that that the past is not full of innovation way of thinking how to deal with landscapes, how to think through landscape, and uh, I think, yeah, I think we uh, have to fight against that. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, uh, I think it's ironic that uh, that uh, we started thinking uh, about, you know, this idea of progress as this, like, we're launching ourselves out of the past. We have left it behind. We have left the trees, and are now upright, walking humans, kind of, you know, so to speak. Um, no longer medieval apes <laughs> uh, but like in in the past before they had any like historicist perspective you know yeah. before they had this kind of bird's eye view of history and things like that they were, were much more uh connected to it they had a much stronger kind of kind of sympathy with the past because the past was kind of always around them and they could it was revitalized in storytelling and and rituals and myths and and yeah. things like that. It's. I think that that's quite 
ironic in that in that sense like with museums and things are kind of a really a symptom of the historicist kind of uh perspective and, and yes. fragmentation of the past which is of course deeply <laughs> regrettable uh, for those of us who are antiquarians you know uh, yeah no it's it's completely true because yeah <laughs> somehow this linear ways of uh, displaying the past is Jordan Bjørnetjenes that doing what could translate as yeah, it, is, yeah. it does not do us any favors, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. In, in this artificial uh, abstract distancing of uh, how things were and how things can be, you know. Think about museums as, as also how things can become or fragments, you know, of things can come to us from the past, you know, how to how to deal you know how how can we live through uh, a time of climate upheaval you know look at the past the past people living in scandinavia stone age uh, whatever you know they had to deal with extreme changes in landscape and climate and sea level rise and everything but they made it through you know how, how did they do it you know yeah yeah or we can end up like the greenland the north greenland greenlanders <laughs> and you know uh, just fade away <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting that uh, that um, the the main like shaping events uh, of uh, of Scandinavian culture have often been uh, cataclysmic, either climate uh, change like cooling events or 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 plagues. Sometimes, often a combination of the two. Uh, yeah. it's like that's uh, what that's like the the grandparents of the Norwegian language. You know, that's uh, what which shaped it basically. Yeah. Why we don't no. speak like the Icelanders do today? No, <laughs> no. I uh, some something. I was just thinking about a deeply Catholic thing about you know, especially in the Norwegian state today. What do we live on this uh, petrol uh, monarchy uh, and just pumping up gas and oil from the seabed and just pumping into the air? You make, yeah, that's. Uh, it's yeah, what to do. <laughs> Oh, you know what's a, you know what is an interesting uh, connection there. Uh, so, you, of course, I'm trying to write my book about trolls. You know, my trollish yeah. theory, uh, and uh, and I've been trying to look at like examples of the use troll. Troll is an extremely versatile word, historically uh, speaking. Yeah, like yeah. the the semantic nuances of it are extreme. It can mean so many things. Like a, like a troll can both be a term that just means anything that is unknown or suspicious or supernatural or it can mean something that is kind of uh unusually one thing or another like an unusually tall man or somebody who is yeah. unusually uh moody or 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 a creature yeah. that is that somehow defies the usual categorization is called a troll often sea creatures and insects are referred to as troll yeah um, that's but uh yeah yeah, the, the whole chapter of the book will probably just be devoted to the semantic nuances. Yeah, of yeah. Even there can be a bit of mean brutish and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, trollete. Yeah, and then it has these romantic yeah. connotations, right? Like, say yeah. something is the adjective trollsk, you know? Yes. Uh, how it you can it, it can uh, invoke a certain image of a natural landscape, like. Uh, like a spruce forest or something, or, or pine forest in a in a rugged mountainside at you know at, at twilight. You know, you could say that that's yes, Scholes, fog you know. on the mountain tarn. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. the twilight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you have, uh, and of course, you have Tusmurke, 
know, which is this, you know, twilight darkness yeah. sort of thing is literally like the same mm. as Old Norse Thurs. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, you know, the Shell Corporation, the oil company. Yes. Uh, their unofficial Norwegian mascot was a troll. <laughs> the fits. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I started, so I was looking at like the National Library because they have so many scans, you know, from the, uh, from the 60s and 70s and up to the 90s and even today. Yeah. And uh, I found, I came across the newsletter for the, for the Shell Corporation in Norway. And uh, it's just so rich in troll illustrations. And of course, they have the troll oil field and things like that. And they're like, they yeah, use yeah, troll yeah, yeah, yeah. puns in their articles all the time. And they have depictions of like, of like drill operators, but they're like trolls, trolls in like hard hats and, <laughs> and trolls standing out in the North Sea pumping oil. And they had wow. a statue of a troll as a doorstopper at their Stavanger office. Like, That's I, you couldn't really make good. this shit up, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, it's just, uh, uh, <laughs> nature imitating art or something like that you know art imitating nature it's uh amazing yeah that's amazing i'm really looking forward to that book you have to finish it sometime <laughs> a lot <laughs> yeah. of stuff to write on <laughs> yeah I, i've been tr i've been trying but i i had like i don't know like i had a hiatus i think i needed to think it over for a while but i've recently started writing again it's you yeah. know if things become too close and you get blind so you have to get it at a distance a little bit and try to see things make a futile attempt at seeing it objectively yeah no but maybe you shouldn't do that i see authors say you should never question the text so oh that's hard <laughs> easy to say and then do that's yeah. uh, horrific to read your own text uh, quite some often but uh but so uh, distance is good you know uh, i've written a lot of crap and uh yeah yeah, same. It's good to get the distance, get to come back to it. And like, oh, yeah, it's it's some some good stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was writing like some of my earlier texts before, uh, kind of with Brute Norse and like its predecessor. That's when I really came like out of my. I started writing things that are like, more more true to myself. But before that, I wrote a lot of like, I don't know, like kind of luddite uh, articles um, where it's yeah. just kind of like like say, pessimism about modernity and and. And, and things like that. Um, but uh, I read it now and I just feel it's, I, I don't disagree with like my point, but it just sounds pompous, you know? Yeah. Like my uh, shit don't stink or something, you know? It's uh, horrible <laughs> to, horrible to, to read. Yeah, but th that's, uh, that's not, not bad, but yeah, I totally get it because yeah, in this time and the accumulated past we live in, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, not hard to be a bit like Heidegger and take this this negative look at technology and progress uh, through through objects. So, but so that's it's a part of the lived reality. It's the, we can't really deeply fight it. You're always the thing, oh, you can head into the forest, you know, into the utmark, and but you can't do shit there. No. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? It's not going to change anything because, you know, what if every Norwegian suddenly would want to be a small farmer or herd goats in the mountains? It's totally impossible. We are, we are locked into a quite weird world. We have to deal with in stages, I think, and uh, deal with, yeah, a past that we have uh, not always chosen, but we have to deal with yeah. yeah, it's 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 strange because like uh, when I go like I often have a journey. I really like walking in the forest and uh, and of course you know you see, but you cannot escape 
anything. You know, you <laughs> you you go there and you see like old fences and uh, and you see the woods there and you recognize that that the woods aren't really truly like nature. They are a rewilded uh, plantations from yeah. from timber plantations and things like that. And you're just and you're just constantly reminded, like at least me, like even when I'm sitting out there, you know, and I'm, it's completely calm. And if I can, if I'm so lucky that I can get far enough that I cannot hear any motor noises, no planes or anything, yeah. you know, no human activity. Uh... I ju I'm just reminded that I am kind of an, I feel like an anomaly. Like I, I, I'm just reminded that I don't, I don't, I'm like an astronaut, mm. you know, in like this environment yeah. uh, that uh, that uh, that I do not like hmm. sort of belong in in a way it's uh yeah uh, that, or that I'm alienated from and have yeah. been so as a result of millions yeah. of years of evolution you know yeah. so <laughs> no it's interesting you know what they talk about the regrowth and this interesting enough a huge part of Norway is regrowing you know it's it's <laughs> Uh, rewilding, as some would say, and people, especially heritage people, are, uh, you know, oh, this is terrible because everything grows over this uh, flower fields and everything, this yeah. the human-made landscapes are disappearing under this carpet of new growth. When, on the other side, you have this, oh, we're, the other part of people uh, looking at nature preserves, are we losing untouched nature? Because <laughs> they have this definition. So one yeah. place you have the people screaming about, you know, are we losing cultural landscape because everything grow over? And the other place you have, are we losing untouched landscape because the people built roads or something? So this yeah. is weird <laughs> stuff going on. In, in Fla flower meadows versus old growth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But being in old growth is so rare, it really is. Yeah. I see an old picture from my uh, the farmstead I grew up in, and from hundreds of years ago. There was not a single tree in the picture; almost yeah. just scrubs everywhere. And when I grew up, you know, it was large trees and this very different landscape. But under this veneer of wild forest, you know, it's this layer of anthropogenic human stuff everywhere. You know, it's so saturated in the environment. Yeah, it's yeah. like. I have a house in Norway as well, and and also kind of plagued by this inner dialogue, arguing with yourself, because because I I cannot be there to maintain the landscape, of course, and I cannot keep you know sheep or goats there because I'm hardly ever there. I can only go there when I when I have like holidays or something. So, but I'm like thinking, oh no, like this uh, this old pasture land is overgrowing, and and um, it originally this was completely treeless and i feel like bad like i'm laying awake at night thinking about how the just completely overgrown kind of peculiar maybe but then you go up there and you're like you're just see, just seeing this reclamation right it's an interesting term this like reclamation of 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 land when something uh when when, when nature is taking over again and then on the other side on the other side um unclaimed land is like uh, undeveloped isn't that the term like development i think that that's an interesting yeah no term there but, but archaeologists you know things will always grow over and that's the cycle yeah. of things and is it necessarily a bad thing yeah we can lose you know this natural meadows and uh, stuff like that but yeah lots of the pastel is encrusted into the soil you know and um, it's still there you know i think we have to just deal with fragmentation and 
I think uh, and this how the past persists but also reshape itself uh, into the future not like something out of air but it's the yeah how things are and uh, I think that's very hard for people to deal with <laughs> no. uh, naturally yeah yeah no uh, this yeah regrowth is yeah it's uh, also happening and especially here in Finnmark we see this because uh, again climate change it's suddenly trees the limit of the height the trees can grow this pops up one meter change can just make this landscape suddenly grow over with trees but it's uh, it's weird and you see it in living time you see the landscapes have been quite stable for many centuries suddenly they start to grow and change and this weird apocalyptic event when there are lots of new growth of trees you have this larva that come to eat up the birch trees so suddenly you have this desert with this huge 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 fields this kilometers of just dead birch wood because yeah. it got eaten up by, the, by this uh, larva and that's that's a part of the past too <laughs> it's weird no yeah it's it's yeah. it's funny i remember uh, uh i was went to Oppland a few years back you know more like inland norway up in the highlands there and it was like uh our host like an old old man kind of like this old hippie guy he was uh yeah. driving us around like in his land rover and uh he was just pointing out like uh, like all the old places where they used to have uh, mountain overpasses, like paths that went over the mountains and through the woods uh, to yeah. other villages across the mountains and things like that. And all of these, you know, nobody's walking there anymore and uh, and the trees are just completely taking over. And also the timber line is higher now. Yes. So, so yeah. where uh, they didn't used to have trees on the mountaintops, but now it's growing all the way to the top, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was just interesting, like he was um, very negative towards like the changes that were happening and like how rapidly they were, things were changing. Yeah. Um, but, I, I remember yeah. asking him if, if he ever had like what, if he ever had like wolves and, and predators there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, that was an interesting contrast, of course. Yeah. In the past, they had a lot more wolves and bears there, but uh, yeah. but no, he was... Mm could see like the white in his knuckles like as he gripped the steering wheel <laughs> we have to have to deal with these changes as people have done before you know because we had not as radical as this but heating events have gone through history you know famously yeah. around the uh, year 800 900 in the viking age and of course the um, biota changed you know the tree line when the tree grow further up in the mountains and the variation in forests were quite different. Like in northern Norway, there was much more uh, spruce trees, for example, and they are probably coming back now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, change will happen. Uh, but yeah, how to live with them is one thing. And like you say, with Scandifurism, you know, it's also about embracing <laughs> yeah no it's true uh, the yeah. future too uh, and how can we you know com- combine the past and the future in this uh, non-luddite way <laughs> of thinking but not selling out either no exactly uh, yeah, yeah yeah that's 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 the bottom line i think that we yeah. have to we have to let the past inform us to find the solutions uh for these things uh you know and be be wise and practical about it mm. i think that yeah we have to 
to find modern and traditional solutions uh, for all of these things if we want to find a way that is not completely fragmented. And that's like as we're talking before we started recording the podcast, like uh, here in the United States, for instance, you know, where people have, you know, Europeans have been living for about almost 500 years now. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I think that like there's, I constantly get this sense that there could have been a lot more uh, yeah. kind of folk culture and much more like uh, traditional know-how here than, than there is. But instead we have this strip mollification, you know, of, yeah. of America, you know, where everything is chains and, and things like that. And I, I think it's, uh, it's not for lack of like a local craft, you know, crafts tradition or yeah. like uh, landscape know-how uh, uh, and, you know, vernacular wisdom. It's, it's, I think it's because Americans tell themselves that it doesn't exist, that they don't have it. Uh, which is yeah. completely absurd uh, to me, at least. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. I think that if they just uh, if they if they believed it themselves and actually like practice it, but I think I don't know. Like, there's something about the the American ideology or culture that yeah. uh, that they they're like trying to speed past it, you know? Yeah. From the T model Ford, you know. <laughs> to, yeah, there's a lot of hard things yeah. for uh, for them com to confront, of course, with uh, with this deep colonial past but uh, they're here to stay you know you can't oh i have to repatriate to my origins 500 years afterwards no you're there you know you can't can't uh, you can't escape it you know like the past it's, it's a really heritage you know <laughs> you <laughs> yes. have to uh, have to deal with it uh, in a good way you know, toppling stat statues can be one way or retreating into the appalachian mountains and uh, yeah who knows yeah, it's a it's a it's a very problematic implication. If uh, if if yeah. after centuries in a place you don't belong there, then it's uh, that's, if that's, that's the basis. Uh, that's the, the some weird uh, sickness of historicism or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, because you know, thinking back to my home village, you know, my ancestor has not lived there for many hundreds of years. They come from different places in Norway, very different places in the deep, dark depths of Gudbrandsdalen some came from, and uh, some people came from northern Norway and not, you know, but I feel kidship with the, with the place and, the, you know, with the, with the landscape. Yeah, it's not, people have to <laughs> and I, I don't know, find this connection themselves, you know, it's, but I, I I really don't like the word spirituality and stuff. I think I think people must must be more concrete with the places. Get to know the plants, get to know the geology, the place, and but not de enchant the place either. You know, I think we, no. enchantment is so hugely important for places, and it doesn't believe doesn't necessarily make matters if you don't believe it's true or either way. But this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get this critique sometimes. Uh, some yeah. sometimes people uh, critique uh, my content, maybe my written content, especially like the debunking articles and things like that. That that uh, that I am like uh, disenchanting or I'm taking taking away their enchantment or something like that. I'm despiritualizing things. I, I think that is completely like I think it's very unfortunate if that's the takeaway. Because <laughs> no, I think no, I think that no. like I think that the enchantment must come from a very concrete source, you know. Yeah. It has I, to I be it, yeah. it has to be robust. If it's uh, if it's such a straw man that it can be blown away 
uh, with the with the <laughs> e simplest doubts, then it's not worth <laughs> it's not worth keeping anyway. I think. Uh, yeah. No, uh, I think it's very important not to say, Alex. You know, if you have this future-proof perspective, you have to also include science because it's so pervasive. It's a part of way of thinking and. Yeah, and but it's also not perfect. It's fragmented. This things we don't know. But like you say, if there's something so evidently fucking wrong, yeah. <laughs> you should tear it down. You know, it's like you you know you're criticizing you know this way of thinking. Why don't you include you know uh, Norwegian saints as a part of this Nazi uh, national uh, <laughs> ideology yeah. cult of uh, uh, fascism in the post-war years and war years? You know, but that's a critique. It's not disenchanting anything <laughs> yeah no exactly but you could also say yeah. like uh, yeah we should uh, include that as part of the discussion but i think also yeah. like when people talk about uh norwegian cultural heritage for instance um i've completely moved beyond this kind of like uh this uh, this idea that like deep paganism that many people are so interested in like they talk about their ancestors and things like that but there's a, a thousand year disconnect I, I think that we yeah we should like the entire heritage i mean like the absolute entire thing not just the things that you find cool you know yeah the things that you're like aesthetically attracted to or something like that no you have to you have to to buy the whole package i think yeah yeah now there's there's a lot of weird stuff going in the banner of being spiritual or spiritualism and especially in the north america so i've seen uh, amongst white people especially this what do you mean by being spiritual what you yeah, know it's uh, i think it's better to be more concrete but Enchanted at the same time. I know some also through practicing, also through people, and they're just normal people living in the world too. And mm. yeah, they practice blute and everything, but it's not really public. They just do it, you know. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a part of them and what they do and how they they interact with the landscape. Even it's a way to it's a way to to be, you know. It's not about the metaphysics or anything. It's it's just how you are yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, libation here or whatever you know yeah uh, I, I think we have to mm, yeah, do something <laughs> different you know and uh, then this spirituality that's linked in this dichotomy between the material one side and this are uh, the higher spiritual dimension of the other and i think we even find it quite differently how how people in the past taught taught that way they did not think like this extremely separated because the spiritual and the material was linked together you know yeah this split is very it's not a derivative uh, or talk down to christianity and uh, protestantism it's it's a quite this recent very modern way of thinking that we have one side we have this boring uh, superficial material things then the other side of this deep dimension of spirituality no it's 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 not divided it's just this inter it's interlinked it's uh, mashed and messy and fragmented yeah yeah it's one of the, the reasons soup. why I'm, yeah whenever i have to explain what i you know uh, i'm making air quotes here believe <laughs> yeah uh it's like i i don't think like like uh norwegian term true Alltså, yeah. det, tro kan du göra i kyrkor, liksom. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, faith is something you can have in church, you know. Uh, but yeah. I don't, uh, I don't find faith uh, an important constituent in in my worldview or even religiosity at all. Like I think that that's a, a completely misguided uh, concept. Uh, I think, I mean, like if you are if you are Christian uh, and uh, 
and of course you cannot escape faith as a as a constituent of your worldview and yeah. you know that's fine i don't I have no no, no critique no, no. Of, of faith in itself no. but faith as a as a fundamental uh, constituent of religiosity i think that is completely complete horseshit i don't think it's yes. necessary at all people in the past did not need faith to uh, <laughs> to, to quote unquote believe anything or to practice their religion religion is something that you that you do right so yeah uh so i you know i think that it's much more important to actually uh to do things, preserve a sense of, of ceremony in even in, in very simple things and uh, the things that you do in life, you know, and treat treat it with uh, sincerity and ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, sincerity is really good and you know, not this uh, false uh, false sense of depth and uh, yeah. No, uh, it's, it's difficult, but it's, it's, it's part of the past, you know, how to yeah. deal with these things and yeah, and this practice is one way to deal with things, to deal with words deal with po poetry deal with history deal with things burial mounds whatever that comes comes to us in this uh, pile of rubble yeah and we also pile stuff on top of it <laughs> yeah. yeah we're creating constantly creating pasts too yeah whether you like it or not yeah yeah no yeah the the, the past is part of the present <laughs> Parts of the past, at least. <laughs> yeah. No, very good. Yeah, I think that uh, I think we're at the end of the end of the road here. We got to save save something for for future conversations too, maybe. Uh, but I think it's been a we've touched some really amazing uh, uh, points here. Um, yeah. Of course, the more been... roads, uh, the more roads under the road we are traveling now. You know this, this death, this stratigraphy, as you said. <laughs> yeah. No, and thank you so much for coming on, Stein Fasavol. Yes, thank you, Eric. And some of my my patrons and and listeners, they they follow your stuff, uh, and uh, they were very got very eager when I say that you you were coming on. Yeah, that's well, really happy to be here. A no-name academic just struggling to hang on. Yeah. <laughs> Mars. 
transformation, fascination, relish await excavation, information of the bygone, revealed by control, exclamation, their bodies complete in the bodies of it, waiting to rise of the oblivion. Age of Iron Man by Tussmörke. Off their newest album, Nordisk Krim. Check it out in the show notes below. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I want to do more interviews of this sort with strange and offbeat academic beasts. So if you have suggestions for something interesting and a little bit different pertaining to the subjects that we tackle here on the podcast, feel free to make a suggestion by dropping me a line over at brutenorse at gmail.com. Now, you can find Brute Norse on a variety of social media. Too many, in fact. I really wish it was less. But if you are struggling to find a home in a brainless, pop culture-saturated online Norsesphere, you ain't the only one. The best way to actually interact with me and the rest of the Scandi Futurist posse is by joining the Brute Norse Discord channel, which is only attainable to those who support me on Patreon. This Wakanda for Varangians is home to a fine gang of highbrow weirdos and misfits, engaging in discussions of everything from obscure folk traditions to Finnish tango music. And speaking of Patreon, patrons get access to most of my content before anybody else, and a permanent 20% reduction on Brutnor's shirts if that's your thing. There are also other physical rewards for the higher tiers. I don't particularly enjoy shilling this shit, but that's how I get paid doing this, which is a small light at the end of the tunnel in this hjadningavig of the Scandi Futurist plight. So having said all of this, there's nothing left to say but wishing you a pleasant day, and keep on walking backwards into the future. Thank you.